The reading today is uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each according to his work, works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immorality, he will give eternal life. This is the word of God. You may be seated. You've heard mentioned a couple of times so far, uh, Julius um, on Wednesday night at the prayer meeting, who entitled his uh, short devotional message as More Bad News. More Bad News. Well, we just looked at a whole section in the first chapter of uh, Romans that was bad news. And we would hope to be able to turn the page and end up with good news. Instead, we end up with more bad news. As we looked at Romans so far, we have seen that Paul presents his epistles in a very logical format. From chapter 1, verse 16, until we get through uh, chapter 15, Paul is going to build step by step by step, logically moving through with each segment, depending on the segment that came before, building up until he reaches the pinnacle of the truths that he intends for us to understand as we look at this book of Romans. To understand what the church is about, to understand what the gospel is about. And that's why verse 16 of chapter 1 begins with those words, I am not ashamed of the gospel. But the gospel is bad news. It begins with bad news. It does not end there unless you reject the gospel. But it does begin there. And so as we flip the page from chapter 1 this week to chapter 2 in our studies, we saw the word therefore. We have run into that word already. And we know that when we see the word therefore, it takes us back to what came before. To look at what we had already studied, what we've already 
looked at. And that's true in this case as well. Throughout this chapter, which is generally speaking directed at the religious Jews, the Jews who were who trusting that their Jewishness was going to give them eternal life. As Paul writes to these individuals in this chapter, he is reinforcing that the wrath of God is not only revealed to the Gentiles, but it is also equally revealed to the Jews. Not only to those who are certainly non-believers, but also to those who profess to be believers. In chapter 1, God's wrath came against the Gentiles because though they knew God and they knew His righteousness, they suppressed the truth, they chose their own way. And therefore, as the Scripture said, they were without excuse. Now Paul turns the tables on the self-righteous Jews who disdained the Gentiles and their lifestyle to show that the same God whose wrath was being revealed against the Gentiles would also pour out His wrath on those Jews who claimed their Jewishness as the basis for their righteousness. For they too were suppressing God's righteous decrees in a very similar way to that of the Gentiles. God's wrath, then, rather than portraying God as an ogre, as an evil tyrant, rather instead it creates an atmosphere for worship and for praise. Just as an audience applauds, when a bad guy like Loki gets destroyed by the good guy like the Hulk who becomes the hero, so the wrath of God poured out against unrighteousness and wickedness of men in all of its forms causes rejoicing in heaven and should cause rejoicing here on earth as well. To know that God will pour out His wrath against ungodliness and wickedness of men. To know that He will do so because the pollution of His creation should cause those whose hearts are right with God to rejoice. And so our theme from this passage this morning states that God's glory shines brightest through the darkest sins of humanity as He judges with righteousness. I want you to think about what that means. God's glory shines brightest in the darkest sins of humanity. We think of God's glory shining most brightly in heaven. But where do you see light more? where there's other light or where there's darkness. Into the midst of the darkest sins of humanity as God judges with righteousness His glory 
is elevated and lifted up. And we'll see more of that when we get to Romans 9. But for now, let's keep our thoughts on this today. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to point out the sins in someone else? Somehow we get to overlook our own failings, but we can sure find the failings in others. Jesus pointed that out when he warned us to take the beam out of our own eye before trying to take the splinter out of someone else's. And what a strange picture that makes for us, doesn't it? I mean, it'd be like Pinocchio, after telling a dozen lies or so, trying to get close enough to someone to stake a splinter out of their finger. Can you imagine that? That's what Jesus is saying in our lives. The image that Paul here is describing as he addresses the self-righteous individuals as they point out the faults of others without looking in the mirror and seeing their own sins. And so we begin this second chapter of Romans. And Paul wants us to notice the false judge. The false judge who is blind in one eye and can't see out of the other. Consider what he says in verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Did you get that? You, the judge, practice the very same things. And do I really have to explain that? Do I really have to point out how every one of us can relate to the idea that other people have judged us? They've judged us according to our race, our religion, how much we weigh, the habits that we have, our food choices, and all kinds of other things. But equally well known is the fact that you judge other people the same way. But Paul here is not discussing our likes and our dislikes. Paul is talking about judging other people by what you consider to be offensive to you, that those things should be offensive to God as well. Once you judge another individual by your standards of what you think is right and wrong, or good and evil, you're acknowledging, first of all, that you believe in good and evil. You believe in truth and error. Whenever we set ourselves up as a judge of another individual, we are saying there's a standard. There is something that is right. And there is something that is wrong. When a lawyer or a judge or a politician who has written the law, when they violate the laws, there's something in us that says they should be judged harder than anyone else. They knew the law and yet they violated the very laws that they are supposed to uphold. So by claiming higher ground than the person that you condemn, 
My standard is here. You didn't meet that standard. That means I am higher than you. By claiming that higher ground, you have become their judge. But you are not their standard. God is. Sean brought that out in his little devotional. God is the judge. You and I are not. Donald Barnhouse wrote, saying, the man who climbs to the highest peak on Mount Everest is technically not that much closer to the moon than the person who climbs their little hill behind their house. The distance is still so vast. So when you, whether in secret or in public, judge another individual, you are dethroning God and placing yourself upon God's throne. That in itself is the greatest violation of sin. Making yourself judge and jury about what is right and what is good. And even if you are right and that other person's actions are sinful, since you are neither good nor righteous, then you deserve the very condemnation that you place on someone else when you judge them. And that is the point that Paul is making in chapter, one, or, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. You are not God. And so it's important that we not only notice that we are false gods, but to notice the final judge is not you either. No one has the right to judge any other person apart from the God-given authority that he is invested in Jesus Christ. All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. And in the church and the elders of the church that have been given that authority as well in Matthew 18 and Jesus in Matthew 28. But even the elders' judgment will be examined on that final day by the true judge of all when all people stand before him to give an account for what they have done in this body, whether good or evil. Verse 2 reminds us of that truth when it says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Back in chapter 1, verse 18, we saw that God's judgments come in a variety of ways already here on earth. They come now on us through death, natural disasters, through wars and epidemics and so many other ways in this world. But there will be a final judgment day, a final day when we will stand before the Lord God, the creator of all the earth. And the court before whom all people will stand, Jew and Gentile, churchgoer and atheist, Hollywood star and homeless person, is and not an impartial judge. 
It is not a judge who will sit there and listen to both sides and have to make a decision about which way to go. He is not limited as Chief Justice Roberts was during the impeachment hearings. The standard by which he judges is not how we stack up to somebody else. It is how we stack up to one man, Jesus Christ. No one can hide. No one can twist the truth. No one can manipulate. No one can bribe this judge. The writers of Hebrews declared that every thought and every intent of the heart is open and bare before him with whom we have to do. Every thought and intent of the heart. There is no defense attorney to plead your case. There is no jury that can be swayed. You sit before a stone-faced judge, the one who wrote the law, the one who has interpreted the law, the one who knows the very heart of every human being. He is the one that will be seated on that throne on that final day. And woe to the individual who stands before him on that day, having set themselves as the standard of righteousness. For they will be the very ones who will end up condemning themselves in his presence. But there is hope. In the midst of all the madness of this darkness that we have seen in chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, there is hope. Notice that God is a forbearing judge. See, God, the scripture says, takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Therefore, he has provided time for repentance. And that is what verse 4 indicates when it says, Oh, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Repentance. Repentance requires humility. It requires an understanding of the depth of my own wickedness. It would drive me to my knees. How can anyone condemn others when they have looked into the mirror of their own heart and they have seen the filth and the wickedness there? Let me be frank. No one is a true Christian who has any sense that they have goodness in and of themselves. Yet there is a goodness, a goodness that comes through Jesus Christ, a goodness that is applied to the hearts of those in their humility who have fallen on their faces before God and have cried out, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the Holy Spirit works that goodness into the very core of our being. But without Christ, there is no good thing in me. How can I ever think then that I am good enough to set the standard for someone else, to tell them how they ought to live. I do not know what has taken place in their past, what has caused them to come to this point in their life 
where I am judging them. I'm unaware of any mitigating factors that have influenced what has caused them to live how they are living. But I am aware because of the Holy Spirit at work. I am aware of my own brokenness. I am aware of my own failures. And when I read that list in chapter 1, verses 29 to 31, those 21 things that the Apostle Paul writes there, I fall on my face anticipating the chopping block. I am condemned by it. And there I must cry out, forgive me, a sinner. Show me mercy, show me grace. Oh my God, oh Lord Jesus Christ, forgive my wayward heart. How could I ever lift myself up as a standard by which to judge others when I myself am so low in and of my own self in sin? And any true Christian understands that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. Not the awe of God, not the reverence of God. So notice that this text talks about the feared judge. Christians far too often take away the impact of the concept of the fear of God. We water it down, we call it the reverence of God, the awe of God, and though it does include those thoughts, it is far more than just those thoughts. Listen to verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgments will be revealed. I ask you, is your God a terrifying God? Are you afraid of God? If not, then you've not understood God. Then you have not known Him. He had better be a terrifying God to you. We often point out when we're talking about the wrath of God and we're talking about the, the terror of God, we, we point out Isaiah, who upon seeing the glory of God in Isaiah 6, is the holiness of God is radiating out from the temple. And him crying out, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and dwell among a people of unclean lips. A prophet, Isaiah. And we see John, the great John the Revelator, in Revelation chapter 1, as he beholds the glory of the resurrected Christ, ascended in power and glory, and falls on his face as though dead in his presence. Moses, the one who has just led the people of Israel out in great power and glory, leading him to Mount Sinai. And as he stood before that holy mountain, the Scripture says that he shook in terror. What God is it that we have that cannot be one who drives fear into our hearts? We read in Hebrews 12, 
For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth at Mount Sinai, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. For our God is a consuming fire. The same God who sent down that fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. The same God who evaporated the 50 soldiers that came to take Elijah as a captive. That same God is the one who is seated on the throne. Or what about Jude 23? Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. And our thoughts go immediately to Lot and to his daughters and his wife as the angels grab their hands and haul them out of Sodom before the fire of God fell and destroyed that city. And even Paul gets in on it as he writes in 2 Corinthians 5, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we, cry, or we try to persuade men. Perhaps as he was writing that, his mind went back to the indictment of God against Ananias and Sapphira, who in lying to the Holy Spirit in the church were instantaneously struck down dead. This is a terrifying judge before whom we stand. And we will hear some, at least, those horrible words. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Christians might tremble, but the wicked will, as Revelation 6 says, call on mountains and hills to fall on them, to hide them from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? I want you this morning to look into the eyes of that judge. I want you to see the smoldering anger in his eyes. To behold the cold anger ready to pour out against all wickedness and ungodliness of man. And I want you to know that the only thing that is holding him back from that blazing wrath, that awful condemnation, is his timing. For, his, for our days are numbered. And yet this is no judge out of control. This is no tweeting maniac upset at how he's been treated. Notice that he is a fair judge who treats all equally with what they deserve. But when I say that, do you really want to face him then? Do you really want to face a fair judge who knows every thought that you have ever had? Has heard every word that you've ever spoken, whether it was in public or in secret? And seen every action you've ever committed, whether in private or in open? Verse 6 claims, He will render to each according to his works. If you've not been afraid of God before, you should be now. Every thought that you've ever had shouted from the rooftops, Jesus warned. 
Do you want every action that you've done in secret shown on the screens of Times Square? How about the words that you've mumbled to yourself or whispered to your confidant, close friend that have been recorded in the heavens and they will be proclaimed on that day of judgment? David made an incredible statement after having committed adultery with Bathsheba and then getting her pregnant and having her husband killed. In the presence of the whole court, the prophet Nathan outed him. And in response, David wrote Psalm 51. Against you, God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Secret sins that he thought had been hidden and forgotten. They were brought out into the open on that day. And David realized how he, who was the king, who was supposed to be reading the law to the people and enforcing that law, he now faced the terrible reality of the fair and just judge of the earth. You are that man. God is fair. And he will render his judgment based upon the evidence. All of the evidence, every dirty little secret, every fear and doubt, every bitter spirit, moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, year by year, stacked up against you. And when they are declared on that day, you will eventually stop up your ears and you will be the one crying, guilty, guilty, guilty. but you won't be that one, will you? Oh, no. No, you're too good for that. You've lived a good life. You're a a good person. You you follow the laws. You're like the elder brother. You stayed at home while the prodigal went running off. And you take hope as you notice the faithful judge. Surely, He will have seen the many good things that you have done. How faithful you have been. But do you really want to play that card? If you do, then you are a fool. You see, the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son is the one who is condemned. Well, the younger brother is the one who is forgiven. The older brother who is judging the other is the one who himself is judged. Did you look closely at what verse 7 says? To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and mortality, he will give eternal life. That sounds promising. At first... If you try hard enough, if you do what you need to to gain eternal life, then you're in, right? You've made it. I know we haven't gotten yet to chapter 3, but let me give you a little taste of what's coming in verse 11. No one understands 
No one seeks God. Oh yes, if anyone would seek God's glory, if anyone would seek His honor, they would receive eternal life. But no one does. Chapter 1 has already established that, and chapter 3 is going to reinforce it as we get to it. The standard for eternal life is what? Perfection. Sinlessness. Even as our Father in heaven is perfect. You remember those Old Testament laws about the sacrifices? The Old Testament laws that said if you're going to bring a sacrifice, that sacrifice has to be perfect. It has to be without blemish, with, with no injuries, no stains. Why? Why? Because anything that is brought before God must be perfect, must have no impurities, no unrighteousness. No, there is no hope for us in verse 7. No hope for any man or any woman who would dare to think that somehow they could be a judge of other people and how they ought to dress and what they should eat or how they should talk as a Christian. I ask you with all seriousness, would Jesus or the apostles match your standard? Would Jesus or the apostles be able to meet the standards that you are setting? They didn't sing our hymns or our songs. They're not of our race. They did not dress in our styles. They did not worship in the way that we worship. You see how foolish our standards are? That we set up to judge others by? What we have set up in our minds as to what is good and what it means to be a Christian is plain foolishness. So the scripture calls us to turn from our prejudices, to lay aside our hypocrisy and to fall on our face before the judge of all the earth. And perhaps he'll have mercy on you. Cling to the cross. For if we do not, the very pits of hell await our falling. Cry out. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Hear the words of the magical mirror when you ask, who's the fairest of them all with the expectation that it will be me? No, the answer comes back, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He is the only one. Do you want eternal life? Then empty yourself of yourself. As James warns, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Seek the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ alone, for only through faith in Him is there salvation from the wrath of God. We look at this text. 
And between chapter 1 and these opening verses of chapter 2, if there is anyone who thinks that in any possible way that you deserve a slap on the back by God saying, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest, then you're a fool. There is only one possible way to receive eternal life. And that is flat on your face in the presence of God. Clinging only to the cross of Jesus Christ. Turning to Him and to Him alone. Whose righteousness can become my righteousness not by my attaining to His goodness, but by His goodness being set upon me through faith. My friends, our God is a consuming fire. And He will destroy the wicked. That neighbor of yours that cousin, that aunt, that mother, that father, that sister, that brother. Do not say of them on the day that they die they are in a better place. If you don't believe in hell, then you don't believe in God. If you do not believe that there is a wrath that is going to be revealed by that eternal God, by the judge of all the earth, then you have not understood how wicked and sinful the hearts of humanity are. Only in Christ, in Christ alone, can we stand. Crying out to him, have mercy on me, Oh, God. And so in conclusion, Paul asks us what we, who we think we are when we set ourselves up as a judge when God is the only one who holds the right to do that. We cannot judge others. We have no standard of righteousness. I recommend that you go back and you read a dozen times verses 29 to 31 of Romans chapter 1 and then tell me that you have good in you in and of yourself. It will condemn you. And it ought to drive you to your knees. Moment by moment, day by day, confessing that you are unworthy and thanking God that through Jesus Christ, He has not only forgiven your sins, but He has given you His Spirit who is daily changing you not because you have good in you, but because He 
is making you good. We will never judge others by our own standards and stand before God not guilty. Let's pray. Father, do we confess our own sinful hearts that have made us judge and jury? Do we confess on this day the wickedness that makes us think that somehow we are better than anyone else? Father, we can look at Hitler and at the SS and we can say how rotten and wicked and horrible they were. But when we read those verses, 29 to 31, we realize that it's only your grace that has kept us from doing the same things. We've had the same thoughts. We've judged others by their race. We've looked down on other people because they were rich and we were poor. We have condemned others in our thoughts and in our minds because they didn't meet our certain standard of worship. We stand before you just as guilty as Hitler, perhaps more so because we've had more truth. I thank you for Jesus Christ. I thank you that you have allowed my eyes to be opened to not only see the cross, but to see the reason for that cross. And to know that apart from what Christ did at that cross, I would be one standing on that day seeing and hearing all of the evil and wickedness of my heart laid bare. And those awful words spoken, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. And so I come with thanksgiving today. Thanksgiving that Jesus Christ paid it all. In Him and in Him alone, we are raised up to become children of God. That we have been given life instead of a death sentence. That we have found our God to be a God of love rather than experiencing that wrath. We thank you and we praise you. And we worship you through Jesus Christ and through him alone. Amen.